Coming up on the Money Beat Podcast, it is time to take a look at 2017. What will the new year hold for the stock market, for the bond market, for the dollar? What new policies will come out of Washington, D.C.? Where is this all going to leave the Fed to help us with our Outlook 2017 special? We are joined today by Jeff Knight from Columbia Threadneedle, David Lafferty from Metixis Global Asset Management, and Urian Timmer from Fidelity Investments. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. You know, I really think we blew an opportunity this week, Grosser. I think we blew, you know, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Money Beat Podcast. How are you, Paul? Steve here in the studio uh, doing again what we've been doing this week is, is we've really been kind of doing holiday themed year-end, look-ahead themed podcasts. Complaining about Dow 20,000. Complaining about Dow 20,000. And I really feel like we missed a branding opportunity here this week. We should have packaged all these and given them a nice little name, put a bow on them. We should have done something. We need a branding expert is what we really need. That probably would have helped. We should have somebody on the Money Beat staff who's a branding expert. Can we find some money in the budget for that in 2017? How about someone to write a few more posts? Oh, posts. <laughs> or edit some posts. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, we don't need that. We've got plenty of that. You know, we don't need that. We need a branding expert. Someone to do graphics. I mean, I have a whole list before I think we get to branding. Really? Yeah, uh, that's yeah. too bad. Uh, everyone, how are you? Glad to be speaking with you again. And if you've been listening this week, we had the, the inaugural Money Beat podcast book club which I think went very well. I was pretty happy with that. An exciting trend to watch in 2017. <laughs> Books. Books. Right, yeah. right. And uh, we had Bob Michelle from J.P. Morgan on earlier this week talking about winners and losers in the bond market. That was a very good one as well. And what we are going to do today is we have three gentlemen on the phone, and I'll introduce them in a moment. And we're going to do a bit of a roundtable here. This is sort of an outlook on 2017 in the markets. And to help us do that, we have on the phone Jeff Knight, who is Global Head of Investment Solutions at Columbia Threadneedle, David Lafferty, who is Chief Market Strategist at Natixis Global Asset Management, and Urian Timmer, who is Director of Global Macro Strategy at Fidelity Investments. Uh, gentlemen, how are you? We're well, thank you. Good, Excellent. good. Excellent. Great. And uh, so what we'll do here is is just to sort of keep this as because it is a lot of people on the podcast. I'm going to have we also have in the studio Chris Dietrich. Hello. I'm going to have Chris give us sort of Chris just give us a, a really kind of brief sketch of 2016, what we can look forward to. And then we're just going to throw some questions at you guys. Right. So thanks, gentlemen, for joining us. And as we look into the new year, of course, you got to reflect a bit on what was no doubt uh, one of the wilder years <laughs> In recent memory with 2016, and, and in terms of the markets, you know, you got to flash all the way back to December 2015. The Fed finally raises interest rates for the first time in a decade. All of a sudden, though, China, China devalues its currency. We get a lot of market turmoil. For the S&P, you'll remember the first 10 trading days of 2016 were the worst on record. Uh, people, are, people are piling into gold. The Fed kind of comes in, saves the day a little bit, says rates are going to be lower, things mellow out. Of course, we have Brexit, the first big political surprise of the year, but, but markets, you know, two days later bounce back, right. calm, calm kind of a summer. And then, of course, the election, which um, was a surprise to say the least. Uh, and yet the, the, the market narrative completely changes uh, ahead of it. A Trump presidency was 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 going to be chaotic. Of course, that lasted all of all of two hours before <laughs> before everything started rallying again. So I'm just going to throw it out here. 
um, maybe to maybe Jeff, why don't you start it start us off? What what are you telling clients about the tremendous rally in stocks, the, the sell off in bonds that we've seen? I mean, how do you sort of explain the the, the post election enthusiasm in the markets? Yeah, you know, I think one other thing that's interesting about 2016 is that everything that will be recorded in the record record books has happened since the election. Yeah. So all of those twists and turns with, mm. with Brexit and the Fed is all <clears throat> in the rearview mirror, and uh, really what we'll remember is what's happened in the last uh, four weeks or so. And, and to me, I, I think it boils down to um, a, an inflection point from sluggish growth and a reliance on monetary policy as the featured aspect of economic policy to uh, 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 the election sweep giving access to a much broader range of economic policy tools, all of which seem to be being directed at higher nominal growth. And at, at its face, that should be good for stocks, that should be bad for bonds, and that's exactly the reaction that we've seen so far. Hmm. Uh, hey, hey, Urian, can, why don't you um, give us your opinion on – I mean, certainly – since Election Day has kind of looked like a, a melt-up. Do you think that's what, what was going on here, and can that continue? Yeah, it has been a melt-up. Um, and investors, especially institutional investors, uh, got resigned over the summer to an indefinite period of you know, secular stagnation. And uh, we have a very sudden regime shift from secular stagnation, low growth, low inflation, low interest rates, heavy burden, as Jeff just mentioned, on monetary policy. Uh, and all of a sudden, we've switched from that regime to uh, an inflationary growth regime. At least that's what the anticipation is, whether it actually happens, obviously, or, you know, is still, is still to be uncovered. But investors were wrong-footed. You know, over the last couple of years, $150 billion or so went from equity funds and ETFs to bond funds and ETFs. And in the last four weeks, about $60 billion of that has reversed. And so when you add up everyone pricing in and discounting a certain regime um, indefinitely to having to switch over, and then that money flow, and then year-end seasonals, which tend to be very strong from November till April, but especially into year-end, and you get exactly, exactly a, a melt-up. And, you know, the Russell 2000 was up 20% in three weeks after the election. And, you know, that's a very, very large move. Yeah. No. I was going to, I was just going to turn it over to David. Um, you look at this; it seems like the market since the election, you know, has been running on a lot of like hope and optimism of what a Trump administration or Republican-controlled uh, Congress uh, will mean for the economy. I mean, first of all, how does the market in 2017, when this, you know, these policies start having to be put into place, reconcile the reality of DC politics, and also how do we also jump from it seems very optimistic to jump from three and a half, um, from two percent GDP growth to three and a half, four percent. Yeah, no, I, I think that's dead on. Uh, the reality is, is that I think the market has it directionally correct. The sort of the Trumpflation trade. I think growth is going to go up. I think stocks and earning, you know, earnings should improve. It should push stocks up. Real rates, inflation premiums, these things should all rise. Maybe the dollar should go up a little bit. I think the market has had it directionally correct. I just think there's been a bit of an overreaction, almost for the reason that you were sort of alluding to. Uh, it seems as if, 
you know, after those first two hours, you know, the market and the futures market was down 5% yeah. the night of the election. But then it looked like when we were going to get the clean Republican sweep and this pro-growth agenda would come in, the market flipped on a dime, had this very strong rally. Uh, and I guess directionally that's consistent, but it seems like it's come a long way in a very short period of time. The seven and a half, eight percent rally in the S and P, you know, annualizes at a rate of over eighty percent. So hmm. I think it has to slow down a bit. I think it's been directionally consistent, uh, but it hasn't really faced any of the challenges of reality or implementation. Uh, will there be infrastructure spending? Yes probably not as much as uh, the administration will like. Will there be tax reform? Yes, but that's always messier and sloppier than, than, mm -hmm. than we would like. It's always harder to get done and more complicated. And I think maybe the one that maybe gets the least amount of play but might have uh, maybe the greatest impact or at least the greatest implementation is is something on around deregulation, which hopefully can freeze up some capital, freeze up some risk-taking, maybe, maybe improve some productivity. So, like I said, I think the market has it directionally consistent or correct, but I think maybe we've, we've jumped out in front of it. I'm a little bit worried that we're uh, siphoning off some of next year's gains with this huge rally this year. Mm. Just, to, you know, as a segue to anticipation for, for growth in 2017. Let's talk a little bit about the Fed. The Fed has been clearly, you know, really dictating much of the market moves that we've seen in recent years. Since the election, though, the, you know, the, the, the narrative shifting from years of monetary policy into fiscal public spending on infrastructure. David, maybe let's just stick with you. You know, how much is riding on the Fed and the, and the pace of increases next year? We had in the most recent meeting, you know, the dot plot projections indicating three, but, you know, is this still a Fed-driven market, or is it now transitioning? Yeah, I think transitioning is a good word. It, it's interesting. This was uh, one of the things that we put in our out outlook last year for 2016 was that central banks would begin to fade to the background, and I went back and graded myself this year <laughs> and uh, really didn't – I feel like – through about the first 10 months of the year, that was dead wrong, that central banks were as much a part of the story as anything else going on in the world. And then maybe in the last six to eight weeks of the year, that theme started to begin to take hold, that maybe central banks are going to be playing less of a role going forward. Uh, the, the Fed, uh, three tightening sounds about right to me. Uh, I think we could also be in for some surprises from other central banks. I know the ECB is trying to, you know, broaden the assets it can hold. Uh, it isn't clear what inflation expectations are going to look like uh, coming out of Germany. Uh, obviously, the U.K. has issues between Brexit. The sell-off we've seen in the pound is going to have inflationary expectations for them. And so this, we've gone from this secular stagnation world where everybody was on hold, uh, and that was the dominant theme. I don't think anybody's going to get aggressively tight in terms of central banks, but I do think that they're going to have to ease up on the accelerator. Uh, and at the margin, we're going to see that transition to maybe central banks aren't the tailwind they've been for the last couple of years. Urian, what's your take? I mean, it would seem that the Fed you know, is, 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 is showing full employment here. Um, you know, what are, what are the risks and how do you sort of see, see the Fed uh, and its impact on the markets? Yeah, you know, as, as the Fed chair said during her press conference last week after the Fed raised rates by a quarter, um, she said, you know, 
a, a big fiscal push would have been helpful a few years ago when there was a lot of slack in the economy. But right now, we, we don't really want it anymore because the economy is deemed to be at full capacity. And when you throw some some gasoline on the fire now, uh, you're you're almost destined to have uh, inflation. And you can see that in terms of how the bond market has, has repriced. You know, about two thirds of the rise in yields has been in uh, from real yields, and the and about a third from inflation expectations, which sounds about right. You know, the taper tantrum back in 2013 was all was more than 100% real rates, um, and actually inflation expectations. So this is this is a, a different type of of, uh, of 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 setup. But ultimately, you know, when when you plug numbers into a discounted cash flow model and you look at equity valuation, you have the numerator, which is growth, and the denominator, which is the discount rate. And to me, this this dance that the Fed has been um, in with the market over the past two years or so has all been about you know there has not been enough growth to um, to accommodate Fed policy tightening because earnings growth until recently was negative and it has been negative since t- basically 2014 and raising rates into that environment is very difficult to do so now that growth is back i mean earnings are now growing at about three percent and you know the prospect is that they're going to grow more and the economy hopefully will now reach some form of escape velocity and in against that background the fed should be able to raise rates in a more traditional sort of orthodox way the way it used to conduct policy and and but it's still a dance because if rates reset too quickly and the dollar shoots up too quickly then financial conditions can tighten up again and it will be too much too soon so there is this tug of war between you know there is now the hope of growth and the fed is is aware of it and it's going to lean into this at least that's what it it implied last week but then the growth actually needs to happen and if you know for instance the 10 year yield shoots above 3% too soon, uh, maybe that undermines the whole thing. So it, it, the Fed still it looms very large in this equation, in my opinion. All right, let's uh, take a break here. We have this important message for you, for all our, our listeners. We will come back on the other side with our roundtable, Jeff Knight, David Lafferty, and Urian Timmer. WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across. The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out The Quirkier Side of Life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. Hi, this is Paul Gigo, host of the Potomac Watch podcast. Join me and my colleagues every week as we dissect all of the latest happenings in Washington. Check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts and become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and the Google Play Music app. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to this special Money Beat podcast, our Outlook 2017 special. And if you want more great podcasts, you can find us at wsj.com slash podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at WSJ Podcasts. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play Music app. And, and Grocer, I'm feeling, a little, I'm feeling a little pressure because I have to – and I want to give credit to – I want everyone to know that the credit for this podcast goes to Chris. Chris, you pulled this one together. And uh, so far, I think we're doing quite well. So Thank you, congratulations sir. to you. You got Bob, you know, to come on. You know, you booked that one. Eisen had the book club. 
great podcast this week, and I haven't come up with any of them. We're used to carrying you, Paul. I know. I'm. I'm. I'm really. I'm feeling but, a little but, pressure. But you're really the talent. I got to come up with something. I, as I said on this podcast. Yeah, but I'm not that talented. That's the problem. You. You're the, you're, you make this work. I can't host. Uh, uh, Chris can't host. I cannot host. host. It's terrible. I'm just a talking you're the head. Talent. I have no brain. I don't yeah, do yeah. any. I bring nothing. Nothing. You're, we've known that for a long time. <laughs> I know. It's terrible. All right. Maybe in 2017, I'll. I'll, I'll try to run up, amp my game. Uh, as we. As you know, we are talking today with Jeff Knight from Columbia Threadneedle, David Lafferty from Natixis Global Asset Management, and Urian Timmer from Fidelity Investments. This is our Outlook 2017 roundtable, and I want to bring it back to Jeff. And uh, Jeff, I want to ask you what. And this is this is about as broad a question as you will ever get asked. But uh, you know, w- what are some of the risks going into 2017? Well, I think we, we just spent some time on one, which is interest rates and the Fed. Um, so much of the, the financial market landscape has been responsive to central bank policy. I don't think we can just move into a new era and forget all about that. And the specific risk that I think that uh, monetary tightening introduces is the risk of uh, the, the, the tantrum patterns that we've seen, the simultaneous drawdowns across asset classes. And I think that remains the most important risk management challenge for portfolio managers. How do we stabilize our portfolios and and, uh, accomplish portfolio resilience in the face of adjustments where we can lose money in stocks and bonds and commodities Mm -hmm. and credit instruments all at the same time? Um, I I think uh, that that risk is one that's very linked to monetary easing and tightening and as we move into more of a monetary tightening phase, I think that's one that we have to be uh, paying lots of attention to. And it means, I think, for investors that we need to think a little bit more expansively about how to diversify our portfolios and maybe a little bit more dynamically about whether we should um, be, be ready and willing to take profits, take some risk uh, lower in an effort to manage that downside risk. Yeah, yeah, I, I I find it almost astounding that there is when the Fed was was first lowering rates and they were throwing all that money in and they're doing the QE programs and you know people warned the, the the sort of shorthand warning was there's no free lunch there will be a payback the Fed's going to have to drain this stuff out at some point there's a, nobody seems to be worried about that at all now I mean no that was the huge worry I that remember, was a huge worry I remember our colleague Thorold Barker he used to run the hurdle yeah. streets now in London that was what he constantly talked about every day in 2010 2011 was the day of reckoning. Yeah. I mean, Jeff, do you, do you, do you hear anyone even talking about that these days? <laughs> it, that conversation very suddenly disappeared. But I, but I think I'm struck by the contrast uh, going into New Year this year versus last year, where last year the Fed had hiked rates in December and was packaging that rate hike as here's the first of many, we're probably going to do three or four this year, and the markets didn't like it at all, the world wasn't ready for it, and it wasn't until the Fed backed away from that uh, stance that we saw some recovery in risk assets. And this year, the packaging of this rate hike was, we're going to let the economy run hot, Um, not quite one and done, but sort of that was more the spirit of it. And suddenly since the election, I think the context has shifted altogether, so the inflection point this year could be in the opposite direction, and I think that very much should be maybe not the dominant conversation, but that should absolutely remain a, a focal point for investors uh, as we go through 2017. 
Right. And I think a, a related point, and to, to switch this now a little bit into the Forex world, you know, we have all these expectations about what is going to happen with the new administration, what policies are going to get implemented. But one one possible um, monkey in the span, you know, monkey wrench there would be a rising dollar. And I wonder, you know, to what extent will the, will the rising dollar, what is that going to have on multinationals? How is it going to offset corporate tax cuts? Um, what kind of currency pegs and, and you know, problems with the yuan? Uh, I want to ask, get Urian's take on that. You know, what does... To, to what extent is dollar strength a risk for the markets? Um, I, I think it's a, it's a real risk. I mean, the dollar strengthening to me is the same as as bond yields rising. And if it strengthens too much and yields rise too much, financial conditions tighten. And in the absence of growth, um, you know, if you overlay a chart of the MSCI All Country World Index and and the financial and a, a series of uh, that that measures financial conditions, you can explain almost every single wiggle in global equity prices by changes in financial conditions, and that's because there has been no growth or not enough growth. So growth solves everything. So if growth does come back, the dollar can rise and yields can rise without upsetting the apple cart. And actually, the Chinese can devalue, as they have all year, without creating this contagion in financial conditions. And so but it's a very delicate balance. If if it over if things overshoot, um, then you know then financial conditions can tighten, and then it'll be too much. But it's all about the the, the intersection of growth and you know rates and or the dollar, which to me are, are different sides of the same coin. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit too. And this is like I know we could do an entire podcast about this, but I'm just going to kind of throw out a. a, a Brief question about just geopolitics. I mean, this year, Brexit, the election, you know, these things were huge unexpecteds. Uh, you look next year, we have elections in Germany, France, and Netherlands. Are you, are you looking at the geopolitical picture and seeing any risks? Um, asking of me, right? If you're in. Oh, yeah, actually, uh, yeah, you're in. Let's, but I was kind of, actually I was just kind of throwing it out, but, but okay. you go, you know, start us uh, off. I mean, obviously. That's the that's the, the the next chapter in this story, right? I mean, this is all part of a larger narrative. It's all a referendum, sort of. You know, it seems to be against you know, immigration and globalization, but it's yeah. really a referendum against insufficient growth. And um, you know, Brexit was an, was a surprise. This election, our election, was a surprise. And then we have, as you said, we have France, Germany, the Netherlands. We just had the Italian referendum, and obviously, if there's a wave in Europe that swings too far and 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 causes a country to leave the euro then that's that's obviously a very significant systemic shock and I think that is what the market will focus on at some point to next year at at this point uh, most most people think that it's not going to tilt enough especially the way the, the the government structure works in Europe with parliamentary structures and you know um, uh, and, and the coalitions and everything that it won't get to that point, but uh, the experts have been wrong every step of the way. So it's definitely something we need to keep in mind. Before I, before we get to the next question, I just wanted to make one point about the contrast between earlier this year and where we are now. And this was back to my previous question. We were talking recession in the first couple of weeks sure. of last year. And when people were betting that there was a recession on the horizon. No one seems to be talking about recession. And the At fact all. that we're talking 4% right. growth, 3.5%, I mean, it's that, that's just startling to me how yeah. much that has no, swung. Right. You're absolutely right. Um, but I, right now, I just want to get to one of my, my favorite topics. I end up writing about it quite a bit. It's just earnings. I mean, there's really nothing more... 
fundamental to the stock market than earnings. We've moved past. We had what five or six quarters of you know earnings growth right. declining. The stock market really, if you look at a sort of chart of it, stalled when it, as earnings growth kind of uh, struggled there. Um, in the third quarter, we saw our first you know quarter of earnings uh, quarter uh, year over year earnings growth. Um, we're expecting more uh, in the coming quarters. I mean, w- how much of that is going to be a catalyst? I guess uh, in the year to come. Maybe throw that one at David. Yeah, right? David, yeah. Yeah, certainly. Uh, so I, I definitely think earnings are, are going to turn positive, and our expectation is, is higher than last year. You know, I, I, as you mentioned, we were basically flat to slightly negative in terms of earnings growth last year on the S&P 500. My guess going into the year was a modest 3 to 5%, and even that turned out to be too optimistic. This year, maybe five, six, seven percent, something like that. I think it'll be an improvement, but I don't think right now the bottom up uh you know consensus is around eleven or twelve percent. I still can't square that math yeah. uh with a global economy that is growing in nominal terms at maybe four and a half or five percent. So uh in aggregate it's hard to see how the the companies in the S P five hundred can grow their revenues, much less their bottom line earnings, uh, given that uh, uh, profit margins are already fairly high. It isn't clear that earnings can grow much faster than revenue. And I think revenue is, is, is usually generally proxied pretty well uh, by global nominal GDP growth. So I see a world growing at 4 5 6%. I think that's probably where earnings ought to be. It's better than where we've been. It's not quite as optimistic either as what the bottom-up folks are saying. Those estimates always tend to gravitate down. But it's also maybe not as optimistic as what uh, this Trump rally has sort of, this post-election rally has implied either. So I think the story on earnings is positive. I'm not sure it's as positive as the consensus is. If I could just add something to to what David just said. I think, you know, as important as earnings are and the fact that we're we're coming out of this down cycle and now earnings are growing again, I think the more important question is the interplay of earnings, price, and valuation, right? For the last seven or so years, we've had a market where price has risen more than earnings, right? The PE in March of 2009 was 10, and today it's 1920 on a trailing basis. What is going to be the dynamic of price versus earnings and therefore valuation going forward. You know, we're at full valuation now. If earnings are growing at five, six, seven percent as David said, are are prices going to grow more than earnings or less than earnings or the same? You know, are are we still going to be in a nineteen multiple environment a year or two years or three years from now? And I would argue that if inflation's rising and economic policy uncertainty is rising, that maybe that's not a nineteen multiple market. Maybe that's an eighteen or a seventeen multiple market. So I think that's part of the of the of the d- dynamic that we need to look at as well. You know, let's talk a little bit more about diversification, Jeff. You had you had um, you know brought this up earlier, but one thing on our desk as November was coming to an end, it was interesting to look at U.S. equity benchmarks. Remember, all four: the Russell, the Dow, the S and P. Uh, what, transports, I guess, is the fourth? All at all-time highs. And yet, if you look at something like the Barclays Aggregate Index for, for bonds, had the worst month in over a decade, right? So if you're a 60-40 um, investor with an IRA and, and a 401k, you know, it, it's not so hot for you. And, David, we spoke a few weeks ago, actually, about, remember on, on Thanksgiving, you said you were getting 
these kind of questions from relatives about like what's the deal with my portfolio and right. and um you know jeff as you mentioned too mentioned earlier we had everything moving together but on, on the other hand it seems like given the wide range of outcomes next year you know diversification seems like a pretty good idea i don't know david like what what's your take on how um you know these these different assets are going to interact and sort of what people should expect in their portfolios I think it's going to be uh, a very interesting market. I mean, as, as and this was covered a bit, but I think the math links back. Uh, rising rates, you know, equities, we think earnings will improve. I, I think it was Urian said this. I think he absolutely nailed it. The, the, the big question for next year is whether we get earnings growth and multiples stay where they are, or really do the earnings grow into the multiples and multiples come down a little bit, which is more my expectation. Uh, I, I think that's really the, the big question for equities. But if you're even modestly optimistic about equities, it links back to what was said before. Do inflation and higher interest rates and the tighter Fed begin to unwind all the good things that we're saying about the equity markets? So I think if you're a 60-40 investor and, and people are talking about this idea of the great rotation that everybody's diving into equities and, and bailing from the bond market, that does have a self-governing mechanism, if you will, where if too many people jump into the great rotation and yields begin to rise too quickly, it's going to put a lid on, on, uh, on equity appreciation. So I think we might get the beginning of the great rotation, or maybe we're seeing it, but I do think there's a self-governing mechanism there that will slow down that process. I don't know that this is going to be a, a multi-year unwind. I think uh, asset allocation will reach a new equilibrium much faster than people think. I guess I, mean, I want to actually jump into that. We've heard for what thirty years now the end of the bond bull market. Um, is 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 the is the end of the bond market here? Is a, is the great rotation gonna um, take place finally now? And this I can I guess I throw out to Jeff or David or whoever wants to take it. Well, I I, I think the uh, the markets are acting uh, as if that's the case, and it's probably <laughs> yes. a defensible point of view to say we may not see the low level, say, of ten year yields in the U.S., which are around one point four percent after the vote in the U U.K. But the market's pricing in, I think, what it's guessing will come about in the early days of the Trump administration, and it is just a guess. So we'll have to see. You know, are, are there forceful enough? Uh, policies enacted to resurrect nominal growth at the levels that are being contemplated at the moment or not, um, it, it's, it's certainly a, a reasonable uh, point of view to say that maybe we won't get quite what's being priced in. And if that's the case, then maybe bonds have repriced enough already, or maybe you throw another couple of months of bad bond market in and suddenly bonds start to look attractive, bonds start to look bulletproof and, and resilient, and the interest, uh, interest comes back. I would say already we've seen enough repricing in bonds that they have r returned to a status of being a, a relevant diversifier hmm. where uh, we're starting to see uh, negative correlation and we're starting to see, I think, some, some valuation buffer so that if something did go wrong, if some disappointing news or some shock showed up, that the bonds could stabilize the portfolio just as they did last January, just as they did after the, uh, the referendum in the U.K., so uh, we may be through the lows of interest rates, but I think the idea that we should dis discard bonds from our portfolio is a, a bit of a dangerous idea. 
Yeah, you know, I, I would agree with, with, with you on, on that, Jeff. Um, I mean, bonds do serve a purpose in a portfolio, and it's to hedge yourself against basically deflation risk. And, uh, you know, a typical bond investor is not going to care why yields are going up, um, but the fact that this has not been all real yields going up has also been a good chunk inflation expectations is a much more benign backdrop than what we saw in 2013 when actually more than the rise in nominal yields came from real yields. So, but having said that, you know, from my perspective, uh, the 10-year the, 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 the belongs at around maybe two and a quarter, maybe heading to two and three quarters over the long term if, if growth returns, and that allows the Fed to normalize policy the way it has been wanting to. Um, and I think the market's already well along the way of pricing that in at a yield of about 255. And if we push towards 3% or above it too soon, then I think that's going to be a problem. And then you would actually want to own bonds um, as insurance, because at that point, the rise in yields is going to start hurting the, the stock market. Uh, c- correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe all you gentlemen, your firms have have pretty robust uh, active stock picking businesses. And you, you look since the election, you've seen correlations are coming down, dispersion is rising. Uh, is this environment right now and heading into the new year, is, is this favorable to stock pickers? And I mean, is this kind of, you know, it's funny because recently we did an entire series on the, the basically basically the death of active management. And we also did a series back in July at Lower for Longer. And right, right. Yields are never going to rise, so uh, we're not so great. <laughs> uh, Yuri, do you want to take a crack at this? I mean, is this now a good time to be a stock picker again? Yeah, I think with, with the regime. So one of the reasons why passive has you know trounced active over the past so many years is uh, one of them is structural because – you know, investment advisors, retail investors, everybody likes to use ETFs as their building blocks, and so those tend to be passive. But the other reason has been just the leadership in the market. When you have a market that's dominated by monetary policy, it creates distortions. And mm-hmm. we saw this over the summer, right? After Brexit, when the 10-year yield went to 1.3%, the market was actually, the S&P broke out, but it broke out for all the wrong reasons. It broke out because low-vol, high-dividend-paying stocks, which is only 20% of the market, pulled the market higher, which is, which is kind of crazy because normally those are the stocks you buy for downside protection because they act like bonds. But these bond proxy stocks got re-rated because their dividend yield became so attractive relative to their bond yields. You, know, you, could, you, could, buy, you could have bought Coca-Cola bonds at 1% or Coca-Cola dividends at 3%. And a lot of bond investors were sort of invading the stock market. And that kind of leadership is not good for active managers because, you know, active managers want to buy interesting stocks with good earnings growth. And, and you know, utilities uh, with very low earnings growth and, and a 20 multiple are not the kind of stocks that, that a typical active manager wants to buy. So with this regime shift from secular stagnation to something more growthy and more inflationary, you've already seen the leadership change. You know, smaller caps are doing better than larger caps. It's, it's more of, a, of an even mix of companies with cyclical growth and pricing power. And if that regime lasts, especially against the backdrop of all the, you know, uh, all the declarations over the summer that active was dead forever, mm-hmm. 
to me as a contrarian um, and, and watching this regime shift take place, I think it's actually a very good time for, for active um, in the U.S., but all, all over the world, basically. All right. Uh, listen, let's let's leave it there. I think we've covered a lot of ground in a pretty short amount of time. Jeff Knight from Columbia Threadneedle, David Lafferty from Natixis, and Urian Timmer from Fidelity Investments. Gentlemen, thank you so much. We really appreciated it. Yeah, this was great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, yeah. fellas. And uh, Grocer, thank you. Chris Dietrich set this thing up. Excellent job, Chris. Very well done. I'm impressed. You, you can take a bow. You can, you can take a bow. You know. Thanks, thanks, guys. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. It's everyone, always good to take a bow. It's always good podcast. to take a bow. And yeah, look, credit where credit is due. So, everyone, thank you for listening. Hope you got a lot out of it, and we'll talk to you soon. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.